This podcast delivered by Australia Post. Whatever you're sending, they make it easy to pay and print your shipping labels from anywhere. And if you're in a metro area, they can come and pick up your parcels with My Post Business. Find out more and go to ozpost.com.au slash podcast. Australia Post. They put everything behind your business. Now, time for the show. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, and I'm here with Business Insider's David Scott. Great to be here. And our guest this week is Shane Oliver, Head of Investment Strategy and Chief Economist at AMP Capital. Thanks for coming along, Shane. Pleasure. Thanks for having me along. Now, so you can find us at businessinsider.com.au or on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. So... It's been a big week. Um, on this week's show, we're going to um, talk about mainly about the GDP, GDP figures, which um, really surprised everybody, um, you know, coming in at 3.1%. We're also going to talk a little bit about the outlook for stocks. ASX looks to have finally turned the corner for this year um, over, the, over the past few weeks, and um, sell in May, go away wasn't necessarily the, um, the smartest strategy. Um, so we'll have a look at that too. And, and we'll also be talking about house prices. Um, but back to this pretty stunning GDP figure. Australia's astonishing economy does it again. It would take something pretty big for Australia not to turn in another quarter of positive growth in the June quarter, which would make it 100 straight quarters without a technical recession, without two consecutive quarters of negative growth. Um, so that's going to be pretty extraordinary. Um, now, the headline number was we get 3.1% annualized growth um, through the year, 1.1% um, through the quarter to March, uh, and the market was expecting 0.8% uh, and 2.8% annualized. And that was in an updated Bloomberg survey um, that came out uh, on the Tuesday, and that was when you know some of the figures... Um, were a little better. Some of the inputs were a little bit better. So let's just talk about the big contribution to the GDP figure was net ex- exports. Shane, do you want to break that down and explain? Because I think a lot of people will have been hearing, well, net, net exports was such a huge contributor. Um, and without that, um, you know, the picture isn't as rosy. Let's talk a bit, a bit about the net exports contribution and how that all um, played into the figures. Well, well I guess basically in Australia, the Demand in the economy is quite weak. So you're seeing weakness in business investment, and that's offsetting strength we're seeing in consumer spending and housing. Um, and so a lot of the growth we've seen over the last year or so has come from what they call net exports. And, of course, when you hear the term net exports, you think, well, how can that possibly be? Commodity prices are stuffed. Um, what's going on here? And, of course, the statistician and what the economists are focusing on is the volume of exports. So it's basically the difference between exports and imports. What's happening here is that we're seeing a booming volume of exports. So all of those mining projects that we've heard so much about over the last few years, they're now completing. And guess what? When they complete the project, up, out comes the exports, which is partly why commodity prices are so weak. And of course, on the other side of the equation, imports are soft, partly because we're not seeing the capital goods imports coming in that are needed for mining investment. So as mining Giant investment goes down... Giant um, trains and all the machinery. Uh, all sorts of machinery that was used in, in setting those mines up in the first place. So th- that's what, basically what's happening here. Is it a good thing? You'd have to say yes, if I think about what you were saying there about the um, Australian economy doing it again. Um, only just a couple of years ago, I remember looking for something on Google, up pops this ad on the Australian recession of 2014, why it's inevitable, just click here, how to protect your money. Then, of course, I think those ads have been running for a few years now. That has, and, of course, last I saw it was 2016, and, of course, that's not going to happen. So the Australian economy has almost pulled a rabbit out of a hat here, but but what it goes to, I think, is, A, people ignored 
the third and final phase of the mining slash resources boom. First phase was surging commodity prices. That was probably the nicest one. You get paid more for doing the same amount of stuff. Second phase was the mining investment boom. That wasn't so good. Led to the two-speed economy. Third and final phase was the surge in exports. The other thing that people forgot was just how flexible the Aussie economy is. Um, Aussie dollars come down. The Reserve Bank got it right in the end, almost five years ago now, by cutting interest rates. That's seen a resurgence in New South Wales, Victoria, and of course uh, consumer spending and housing. So all those things are, are, are resulting in this mix, which overall looks reasonably good. So, um, David, um, I know uh, you um, obviously looking at this. You know, it's a backward-looking measure. It's based on volume. Um, you had a, have a lot of um, strong, I think, th thoughts on how the GDP figure is put together and how it reflects the state of the economy. Why don't you take us through uh, what you saw when you saw the numbers this week? It was a big number. That was the first thing that really struck my mind. And uh, wow, the uh, I knew that it was going to be... I had a feeling that it was going to be an upside risk heading into it when I saw the net export figure being uh, as, as large as it was and I saw marginal upgrades. But when I saw 3.1 and 1.1 uh, for the quarter, I was uh, a bit surprised. Uh, it was a very, very strong figure. Um, the thing I noticed is just that... Uh, People were making a, a big hoo-ha about uh, the net export contribution being the only thing that contributed to growth, which is rubbish. It's, uh, it's clearly not. But what you're seeing is, uh, is what Shane was just talking about. It's the transition of the, the stages of the mining boom from high prices to infrastructure being invested to actual output, the, the commodities being shipped uh, to places around the world, primarily China in this case. And that's what I'm looking at in terms of the, uh, the flow. To me, it was, um, it was just a reflection of what we're seeing as part of that transition. The domestic economy, consumption was okay. It wasn't great. But on the other side, you know, you're looking at what's going on with incomes. The labour market's not crash hot at the moment as well. So all things being equal, uh, I, was, you know, I was relatively impressed with the composition of it. So there are, yeah, there is a, there are a mixture of, um, of signals out there, I think, and particularly on the domestic economy. You know, we've got... Um, reasonably good unemployment uh, rate um, and there's still job creation um, even though it appears to be slowing um, and there's you know still plenty of uh, construction activity going on so uh, as all of that activity particularly in Queensland and Western Australia winds down and their state-based economies if you look at them just at local level they're um, uh, not doing too hot but there are jobs for being created for a lot of those um, people in in the eastern states now. Um, so, you know, there's still enough activity to support it. But um, I think as Andrew Charlton, uh, who was Kevin Rudd's former uh, economic advisor, um, he noted during the week, um, and we, we published this column on BI, um, that there's um, a few indicators flashing red. So we've got record low wages growth. Um, company profits um, were, uh, I think, surprised everybody this week um, by, at the rate that they, um, they fell at, down 8.44%. And um, we've got an issue with the budget deficit. Shane, what does it take to, um, what would it take in your view for you to become um, optimistic about the trajectory for the domestic economy? Well, I mean, there is an issue here that if you look at the real side of the economy, which is traditionally what economists look at, volume growth, um, things look okay. You can debate about whether it's WA or New South Wales or wherever, but overall it looks okay on average. Um, the downside, of course, is, yes, yeah, the weakness in income, and that's popping up in weak profits and weak wages, in inflation, which is well below target. It's, it's uh, showing up in weak uh, 
profits as well, and of course, uh, as you say, revenue going to Canberra is weak because of, uh, of weak income. And often people feel that. If you talk to a retailer, what do they feel? They feel nominal sales. They don't feel volumes, they feel nominal sales. So um, that sort of gives us this feeling that even though the economy is doing well, you know, Australians' level of confidence isn't quite reflecting that. And it's because the nominal side of the economy is not so flash. And so there is an issue there, um, which is why the Reserve Bank has cut interest rates again. Um, obviously, the Reserve Bank would have been surprised, like David and I were, by the 3.1% growth number. Um, and I think everyone was, if you go back to a week ago, even those who did revise their number up to the final outcome would have admitted they were surprised if you go back a week ago. So, but, of course, what's, um, what the concern in Australia is just this weakness in incomes, and that's pretty much a global phenomenon. Um, on the one hand, I can point to things that might give me a bit of confidence going forward. Uh, you can make an argument that we may have seen the worst in terms of commodity prices, so the big drag on Australia's national income from falling iron ore coal prices, that. That may, we may have seen the worst on that front. Um, but by the same token, we're still in a very weak inflation environment globally. There's a lot of competition going on. You know, why, were, why was food uh, retailing so weak in April? Well, it's quite possible that it reflects the competition amongst yeah, Aldi and supermarkets, all that sort of stuff. So th there's a lot more going on than just commodity prices here. And, of course, there's a, there's, a, there's a long workout. So on the one hand, on the one hand, volume growth in the economy is doing well. We haven't had the recession, probably won't have a recession. Um, we've entered the biggest boom in our history without uh, getting crushed. All good stuff. But at the same time, it's going to feel a little bit rough for a while to come. It does leave the RBA in a, a difficult situation. Um, what's your base case now for um, the rest of the year? Well, my base case uh, is two more rate cuts, uh, now, there was some possibility that that rate cut might come in the week ahead um, because, uh, you know, oftentimes the Reserve Bank does it once, they go again. Um, but reading the minutes from the last meeting, one got the impression that the Reserve Bank may not be in a hurry. They said they had considered waiting for further information, all that sort of stuff. Um, you might also, the Reserve would probably also argue, well, house prices are pretty strong, real growth in the economy is pretty good. Uh, so let's just wait and see. Now, the counter-arguments to, to, to still ease, though, are that the inflation number is well below target. Wages growth suggests potentially more weakness in inflation to come. The Aussie dollar, I think, is still too high. Um, and the issue about nominal growth in the economy will remain for some time. So no move in the next week or so, or, or even uh, July, but I think we will see a move come August and then another one come November, which will take us down to 1.25% for the cash rate. And um, David, how do you see the RBA's predicament right now? Well, they're looking at uh, a lot of variety of things, uh, none less than uh, the rebound in house prices, which I think we're going to talk about later. That's, uh, that's something that may become a thorny issue for them and, and may see uh, no, a bit of caution when it comes to easing. I still think that they're going to ease again. Uh, I look at... Uh, as Shane was talking, he said that August and November, traditionally they're months that uh, the RBA likes to go, particularly under Glenn Stevens' uh, tenure as governor. Uh, they get the inflation report, then a week later they get the, uh, the statement of monetary policy where they can go and update their forecasts and go and explain to the markets the reasoning for that. Yeah, in terms of what I look for next week in the, uh, the RBA statement, uh, I expect that they'll go and reinsert uh, an easing bias to go and uh, communicate that it's still more likely than not that interest rates will fall. Uh, as for the rest of the statement, I'll be looking for a little bit of uh, and a commentary about what's going on in the labour market and also the housing market. The GDP numbers, um, the last two quarters, uh, have beaten expectations by um, 
you know, there are a couple of, um, of decimal points. Um, but in the scheme of things, they're big beats, particularly in the current uh, state of when you look at the current state of global growth. Um, you know, uh, 2.5% is um, pretty good for an advanced economy at the moment. Uh, now we've seen Australia humming along at sort of three-ish uh, uh, percent. Um, so, and there's even been talk this week that maybe growth is returning to something that, you know, it might be starting to look like that it's back to sort of trend-level growth, which is around 3, 3.5. Um, why do you think it is that these numbers are being... Uh, underestimated um, by the market because there are some obviously some significant decisions that are um, centered around how fast the economy is growing um, and in the last six months uh, the data has shown it to be stronger than people were reading it. Um, from, from where you sit why do you think that is being um, underestimated? Well that's a good question um, I, I think it partly relates to swings and roundabouts here we had a if you go back a year or two, there was a time there where the, the growth numbers were surprising on the downside, and I think that caused a lot of people to reset the, the, their expectations. There was a debate about what potential growth in the Australian economy is. There, there was concern about a lack of productivity. Um, and, of course, now it's sort of swung the other way. So maybe it swung from one extreme, a bit too pessimistic, to now a bit too too good, and the truth is somewhere in between. Um, there always was this. I mean, we've always had this productivity puzzle on Australia, um, and I and many others would lament the fact that we're not seeing the sort of economic reforms that we saw through the Hawke-Keating, Howard Costello period, um, that the current election campaign is incredibly depressing for economists who were around that time. Uh, and I must say, incredibly depressing, very depressing, in fact, that we're not really debating the real issues. It's all this uh, sideshow stuff that, um, if it's resolved in one way or the other, could actually make people worse off. But um, So that does worry me a little bit. But suddenly... When you look at the productivity numbers, I think, what, 1.5% weren't too bad. So maybe uh, people have got a bit too pessimistic there. I think what may have happened, though, was that productivity got a hit when we're doing all this mining investment. So all this, this input's going in, but nothing much is popping out. Suddenly we're seeing something pop out, and that's why the productivity numbers suddenly look healthier again. But at the end of the day, I'd say there's swings and roundabouts here. We probably had a period where growth was a little bit too low relative to the underlying trend, and now we've swung back to that and we've maybe swung a bit too far the other way. The truth is probably somewhere in between. I, th I think we are still going through a relatively constrained environment, but the big thing in all of this is that Australia has invested massively in gas and iron ore production and a few others, um, and those things are going to reap dividends in the years ahead. Um, and that, that uh, believe it or not, is probably going to keep us looking relatively healthy compared to other advanced countries. And of course the, the sort of brush with mortality for the, the, um, the, the, the resources sector over the past 12 months as um, the uh, Chinese economy slowed and we saw um, prices starting to fall um, enforced a lot of uh, rethinking in, about cost bases in, um, in the resources sector. So you had, you know, Fortescue look very carefully, manage its cost base down. Um, obviously, with the, the new mines that um, the likes of B, uh, BHP and Rio built, their cost of production um, reduced because they're just more efficient. Um, so um, so th there was probably a bit of, you know, imposed uh, uh, discipline um, by, by China um, coming off what was an outrageously high uh, growth rate for a while. That, that's probably right. I mean, right through the last few years, you know, when we, we look at the profit results that come in every six months, 
one of the big themes has been cost out or efficiency. Um, yes, there's been good labour, like, sorry, employment growth, but you know when you look beneath the surface, a lot of it's switching people from full-time jobs. It's in the growth in part-time jobs. So there has been a lot of focus on cost control in Australia, and and hopefully that will be, that will reap benefits longer term as well. But the miners have certainly done that. They've been through the ringer here. Um, they've got their cost base down. The big ones, I suspect, will come out of this in a few years' time, looking incredibly strong. And look, in the, the you touched on the election campaign, and obviously um, the the coalition is focusing very hard on, you know, we have a plan to manage the transitioning transitioning economy. Um, can I ask you both, and I'll start with you, David. How do you think this transition is going? You know, we've got plenty of data from um, the uh, national accounts this week. Um, you know, those um, company profits not looking too hot. Um, but how, how, from where you sit, what, uh, how do you see the transition uh, in, in quote marks? How do you see that progressing? Well, first and foremost, it's, uh, it's, to me, I think it's going as good as it, you can possibly expect, given the circumstances we've, uh, we've seen uh, a once-in-a-generation and perhaps a once-in-a-multi-generation boom in commodity prices and an unwind in that and an unwind in investment uh, that's, that's now been accompanied by that and will continue for the next few years. All things considered, the household sector looks okay. Uh, you know, you've got... Unemployment's not high, it's not low, it's okay. Wage growth, of course, is running at record lows, which is not great. Investment markets are okay. That's helping people, like, you know, to, uh, to go and tick over the spending. Uh, but I look at, uh, you know, the, where, where else could we possibly be at this moment? You know, it, there's the, the downside risks that we're looking into this, uh, this period that we're now in. Uh, were significantly worse, and there were, as Shane was talking uh, earlier on about you know, the impending uh, recession of 2014-2015. I think it's going okay. It's uh, the best as probably we you know you can expect for what we're going through. I think a lot of economists were maybe heartened over the past sort of 18 months to see some focus on the importance of diversifying the economy and. Um, uh, and, if, and we had the promise of a tax debate, tax reform, and what happened there? I, I don't know. Again, another attempt at tax reform hit the dust. This, this, this is, uh, yeah, so I was heartened. <laughs> I don't know that I am at the moment. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I think Coalition this week put out some charts, you know, saying, you know, back the team that has the plan to keep us going where we're going. Um, even though they announced their plans in May and the figures were for the three months to the end of March. Um, but that's okay. Um, it's politics and we're in the middle of an election campaign. That's, you know, this, this, these things will happen. Um, but how do you see this, this transition, this transition playing out? David, you know, as you, do you think it's progressing? And, and from a policy side, what do you think, uh, would be useful in, uh, helping to underpin it and, and, um, maybe accelerate that transition? I, th I think it's certainly progressing. You know, this, this is what we are seeing. If you go back 10 years ago, we talked about a two-speed economy. WA was booming. The rest of Australia was sort of stuffed, particularly southeast Australia. We're now, it's now in reverse. Um, so I think we have seen a progression away from reliance on mining investment and other parts of the economy that were suppressed have bounced back. So I think that's happened. Um, it, it's largely happened, I think, the economy would have seen a bit of that anyway, but I think the flexibility that was injected into the economy thanks to the reforms in the 80s and 90s uh, are, are, are what's driving this. I, I don't think it's got too much to do with um, the politics of the last six, seven years, um, or what is it, the last eight years now. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's happened despite them, if you like. And there has been some good policies put up 
Um, but I don't know whether they would have had any, much impact at the, mar at the margin, like the innovation statement, all that sort of stuff. All worthy stuff, but yeah, are they having much impact here in reality? I, I doubt it. I think it's just the flexibility that was injected into the economy many years ago. Um, the exchange rates, you know, the financial system, sending resources in the right direction, um, the flexibility in the labour market, um, all these sorts of things are what's keeping us going. So... Because um, the difficulty of policy reform we've seen um, in the last few weeks, uh, the, the government announced in, uh, at the start of May in the budget um, what I would consider to be some fairly modest changes to how superannuation works. Um, you know, that you'd be taxed on anything over $1.6 million. You're taxed on the earnings if you can get 5%. Um, well done, good on you, and you'll be taxed 15% um, on the income uh, from that, on the on the earnings from that. So, um, you know, which if you've got a million dollars in that in that account, uh, you might be paying a few thousand dollars uh, extra a year in in tax. Um, it's so that, not the end of the world, sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and this is you know if if somebody has enough to have uh, 1.6 million dollars in their retirement income account plus whatever other nest egg they've built up, which they're using, which they're going to be taxed on the earnings on, um, a few thousand dollars uh, for uh, those kind of people. I think, you know, if you speak to most of them, they're, okay, well, that's what I spent last weekend um, going to the Hunter Valley or whatever it was. You know, it's uh, not too, um, uh, they're not going to miss it terribly. Um, but you've got this big sort of um, what appears to be a grassroots anger and a liberal coalition base, if you like, I'll, I'll use that term advisedly, but a coalition sort of revolt um, against the government. You know, so even trying something modest like this creates a lot of noise and a lot of disturbance and a lot of sort of difficulty for politicians. Um, and we saw this too with the, um, with the GST um, back in January and it all became a little bit too hard. Um, the other policy areas that you think you'd like to see them tackling? Uh, well, tax generally is a problem. I, I think the reason you see that backlash is partly because the Australian tax system is, is quite progressive. You know, the top marginal tax rate at 49 cents in the dollar is relatively high compared to Hong Kong, 15%, Singapore, 20%, New Zealand, 33%. Um, and it also kicks in at a relatively low level. I think it's two times average weekly earnings, whereas... The OECD norm is the top marginal tax rate only kicks in at four to, four to five times average earnings. So um, there's a bit of an issue around that. And, and so anything which winds back access to concessions for higher income earners because they're already paying a relatively high share of the tax in Australia naturally creates a backlash from that that constituency. Yeah, so, oh my goodness, you're coming for me again. Yeah, I mean, they, uh, I mean budget repair was paid for partly by... The, uh, the, the temporary tax levy, and now that looks like it's going to be permanent if, if Labor wins. Um, and it's, it's sort of like a tax on negative gearing, all these sorts of things. So I, I kind of think that if we could reform the tax system generally, so you get down the marginal tax rates across the board, um, the interest in superannuation at the extreme, negative gearing, capital gains tax discount, some of those things would fade away a little bit as an issue because people would be saying, well, I'm, I'm only paying 40 cents in the dollar, not 49 cents in the dollar, and therefore they'd be less inclined to find ways to get down their tax bill, perhaps. But uh, there are issues around that. But overall, I, like most economists, would far prefer a system where we rely more on indirect tax, sales tax, GST, um, and far less on income. Yes, I'd all be uh, totally 
agree you've got to compensate low-income earners, pensioners and so on for that change. Um, but I think that would result in a far more dynamic economy and an economy where the tax base keeps up with growth in the economy. It's not keeping up at the moment. This is a major problem. This is why the states are complaining, because the GST is levied on a narrow base that's growing, it's declining in importance to the overall economy. So big issues on that front. Um, the, I mean, Glenn Stevens always has a great response to this. What are the areas we need to reform? The Productivity Commission has a list, long list of things. Let's go down through the list. But, of course, we never do that. Um, we, for some reason, we, we seem to, to, to sort of fudge it. I was quite pleased when Labor, going into the last election campaign, 2013, they had a thing called the National Competitiveness Agenda or something like that that they were going to focus on, whereas this time we're not seeing any of that. Uh, and that, that worries me a little bit, that we, we're, maybe there's too much focus on dividing the cake up and not enough on growing the cake. Um, and that could bite us on a long-term basis. The trouble is it takes a long time for the negative impact from those sorts of policies to start to become apparent. But when they do, you end up with the results that you saw in the 1970s. And, of course, that led, then led to the backlash that ushered in Reagan, Thatcher and Hawke and Keating, and we got ourselves back on track again. So hopefully not, we're not going through a similar long cycle like that. You touched on there in um, on the you know negative gearing form, and also I suppose you know taxes um, and tax proposals can have a significant uh, impact on uh, where people um, choose to, at a personal level, at a savings level, choose to to put their money. Um, we have seen in the last uh, in the, at the start of this year, it, throughout uh, 2015, there was talk that the housing market was going to have to slow uh, in terms of um, annual house, house price, price growth. But uh, over the last few months, the data has um, been very strong. Uh, clearance rates 70 uh, plus percent in the, in the major cities. Um, and we've got um, plus 5% uh, growth in capital cities. Um, that's all Australian capital cities. So that's accounting for the tanking markets in Darwin and Perth. Plus five percent growth over the past um, over the past five months. So, um, David, do you think this is uh, sustainable? Um, and what's your read on uh, where the um, where the housing market is at at the moment? Five percent in five months. Uh, you'd like to say no, but uh, Australia's proven people wrong time and time again, uh, year after year. It seems um, after the uh, the run up we've seen over the uh, the past five or six years, uh, I suggest that uh, rates of that magnitude are probably not sustainable, particularly though with tighter lending standards uh, and the like, uh, and also that the fact you've got incomes as well is not, uh, is not keeping up anywhere near as much as, uh, as what house prices have done, which means that you know, if there's going to be those rapid increases at the moment, it looks like it will have to come from debt. Um, interestingly enough, uh, just the, the acceleration we're seeing, particularly in the last couple of months as well, uh, this coincide, and there's been a, a noticeable you know, pick up in, uh, in lending uh, to investors. Um, obviously, uh, you've seen that uh, there was a trend down at the end of last year, but all of a sudden that's gone and picked back up, and um, that could be that, uh, that lenders are now having the ability to go and re-offer loans to, uh, to investors. Uh, but it also coincided with the announcement from, uh, from Labor back in, uh, I think it was February, uh, about the negative gearing arrangements. And I just wonder whether that may have had some, uh, some influence uh, that if Labor was to get in, they would go and keep existing arrangements on, uh, on existing properties for negatively geared uh, properties uh, up until the 1st of July uh, 2017, then it will be grandfathered. And I'm just wondering whether perhaps that may have brought forth some demand. People are concerned that there might be a change of policy and the like that, uh, that's driving this momentum. Uh, it's all speculative at this stage. I've got no hard data, but uh, we'll start finding a bit more, uh, a bit more data out in the next week or so. 
But uh, is this interesting to go and notice that the, the two things, one, one announcement, then all of a sudden you're seeing a noticeable pickup in that area? And Shane, the, the issue is here too, um, is that we're, you know, we're coming off years, a couple of years of very, very strong growth, particularly in, in Sydney and Melbourne, and it looks like we might maybe headed for another when you know, um, the income multiples uh, that we've been seeing in the major capital cities have been growing. Um, and, you know, there has been a bit of a bit of talk about housing affordability, and this has prompted some of um, Labour's, um, I guess part, that was part of the motivation for, for their um, their decision to make that, that um, to commit to that policy back in, in, in February. Um, but what's your take on, on the... Um, the continued um, effervescence, I, I guess, in the in the housing market. I actually remember years ago, you explaining to me that one of the signs of a, the signs of a housing bubble is when you see in the media the, the, the sort of excitement and the stories um, about houses going for huge amounts of money. But I think that's noticeably absent this time. Yeah, it, um, yeah, it's, it's a question of. Also, the popularity of cooking shows versus home renovation shows. <laughs> and, and you can still... I, I, what was I watching the other night? Um, MasterChef. So <laughs> it's, it's, you could argue that's still a bit more popular than the home renovation shows, which maybe reflects the, the narrower nature of the boom this time around. It's Sydney and Melbourne, whereas the rest of Australia, not so much. Um, but I, I would agree with David. You know, you've had... Um, it, it worries me. It, it's 5% in five months would probably be OK if you just had a long period of no growth or falling prices, but trouble is in Sydney and Melbourne, prices are up, what, 30 40% over, over three years. Um, house price affordability is looking terrible. Um, there's potential oversupply in certain suburbs of units, and, of course, we also heard in the last week that um, unit approvals were driving approvals generally up back up towards the highs. So it does worry me a little bit. If you'd asked me three or four years ago, when we first started on the housing, is it a bubble? I said no, I didn't think it was a bubble. It didn't tick off a lot of the things that I think. It's always overvalued in Australia, but it didn't tick off um, extrapolation, you know, price gains being extrapolated in the future, and we didn't have the media enthusiasm. But last year I started to really, 2014, 2015, I started to really worry about it. I got relaxed last year when it started to cool down. Now I'm getting worried again. I think it, I, I would much rather see the housing numbers slowing down rather than, than uh, booming again like they are now. Yeah, it's interesting. Where, where this data came from, the 5% in five months, was a CoreLogic RP data report that came out. And one of the big takeaways from that was that all the strength was almost predominantly in freestanding houses. It wasn't in units. Uh, units, I think, were up 0.1 for the month. And that's continuing a kind of trend that we've been seeing over uh, you know, the last six months or so. Uh, and I do worry as well, like I live in an area of uh, Sydney and Waterloo, it's going to be the most densely populated area in Sydney, uh, if not Australia, I think, uh, no, it will surpass uh, Piermont in the, uh, the next, uh, next couple of years. Um, and they're still building, there's everywhere, like in my, I've got crane sounds in my head each, uh, each day going to sleep because all I've been hearing is like you no know, jackhammering and things like that. And I do have to question who's actually buying them and, uh, and, and where the demand is coming from. Prices are already starting to stagnate for units and they're still buying they're still building, should I say, a whole lot of uh, supply coming onto the market, particularly in those inner city areas of, uh, of Sydney, Brisbane and Melbourne. Uh, I do wonder what's going on. There's an apartment block across from me uh, that was built, and then I can see that the light's on now at night time. And I, the, the year or so that I've been living there, 
I'll say maybe a third of the lights are on in the apartments, which tells me that some sort of occupancy there's, there's obviously not been occupied, but it's one of those things that I'm looking at, and it's just anecdotal evidence. I'm seeing that, you no, know, is it potentially something to do with, uh, with foreign buyers? I'm not sure, but uh, I wonder what would happen if that particular market dried up, what would happen to the, uh, to the unit market in the, uh, the East Coast? I live in Avalon, and uh, I've got to, I'm quite pleased because up there there's hardly any new supply coming on. I mean, there is construction activity, but there's nothing like the money elsewhere or in other parts of Sydney. So it's, it's odd in a way that some parts, I think, are really at risk um, from potential oversupply. Other parts, um, not at all. And uh, it sort of presents a bit of a dilemma. But I must find analysing Australian property has been a challenge now for the last uh, 15 years. Like, I thought it had gone way over the top in uh, Sydney in 2003. And then, mind you, we did spend a couple of years there with prices in the Western suburbs falling 10%. Then it all took off again, and then it cools back, and then it takes off again. But the underlying problem, I guess, in Australia is that we haven't had the chronic oversupply that you had in the US. And the other thing is that um, sort of like half the mortgage amount has gone to relatively high income earners. So um, the quality of lending generally, despite the anecdotes occasionally here, the quality of lending generally has been reasonably good, and you haven't seen the deterioration that you saw in the US prior to the GFC. So that's why I still lean to the view that, yes, there'll be a little bit of a pullback out there, 5%, 10% or something. Um, doesn't look like it's going to be this year, but maybe 2017. Um, but I still lean to the view we won't have a crash. But if we keep going up like the way we are now, then the risk of a crash does rise. Um, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast on Business Insider Australia. Don't forget, you can follow us at uh, businessinsider.com.au or on Twitter at BIOz. And I'm here with David Scott and Shane Oliver from AMP Capital. Look, we're getting close to the weekend, so um, we can talk uh, about something that um, may be a little bit more cheery. And Shane, um, you've got a reasonably positive take on the outlook for stocks. That's right. I, I, this is... The end of May. We all know the old saying, sell in May, go away, come back on St. Ledger's Day, which is somewhere out there in, in uh, September. Um, but uh, so, And there are things to worry about in the short term. You know, the Fed mid-June, the Brexit uh, vote, the uh, Australian election, um, you know, Mr Trump in the US, uh, Spanish election in there somewhere. Um, so there's a whole bunch of things you could worry, worry about. And um, that could cause us, give us a bit of a pullback, a bit of a correction in the short term. But overall, I think the environment looks okay to me. I, I don't see the recession that everyone was worried about, either globally or in Australia, at the start of this year. I see an environment where stocks, particularly if you allow for the reality of low interest rates, are not onerous in terms of valuation, um, particularly if you look at European shares, uh, Japanese shares, Chinese shares, look reasonably attractive to me. Um, Aussie market, you know, still paying great dividends, um, which I think makes the Australian share market reasonably attractive. And then, of course, you've got sentiment, um, which, if you look at uh, the American Association of Individual Investors, uh, only about 18% of investors say they're bullish, which is down about as low as that survey ever gets. And likewise in Australia, um, when Westpac Melbourne Institute asked the question, um, what's the wisest place for savings? Only 7 or 8% of people are saying shares... Um, the norm used to be something like 15%. Um, so when sentiment is that negative, um, you could argue, well, there's potential for better returns down the track. If the, if the crowd's bearish, then you know, history would tell us there's, there's a case to be bullish. Um, so overall, I think there is reason to be reasonably optimistic. Not so sure about the next three, four months, um, but if you take a one-year view, I think things are OK. If you look back historically, the big decider between 
um, whether a bear market, because we had one recently in Australia, we came down 20% from the high, goes on again and keeps going down, falls another 20%. The big differentiator between that and more calmer bear markets, where you come down 20% and a year later you're up, is whether you have a recession or not. And I don't think we're going to have a recession, therefore I'd bet on markets being higher in 12 months rather than being lower. Yeah, there is, um, there's quite a, it's going to be a pretty big period between now and, say, November. Um, we'll probably get a better picture on the U.S. Um, around about October, well, I suppose, when voters really start to focus on the choice that they have. Um, we've also got um, the um, British uh, uh, Brexit referendum. Um, and I think uh, SOCGEN um, had its black swans chart out this week, and they put 40%, which I found extraordinarily high, but 40%. Uh, probability that some sort of European political instability, a revisitation, I suppose, of something similar to what the, the sense of crisis that there was when, um, when, when uh, it looked like Greece was going to be booted out, um, that, that, that we might get back to that point. Um, I think Brexit would really shock markets because the amount of uncertainty about um, you know, a whole bunch of questions about um, global trade and the European project and all of that kind of stuff would it would throw up. Um, but uh, but um, after that, yeah, it's um, I think it's interesting that you know valuations historically still high, but we're in this period where interest rates are this ridiculous, uh, ridiculously low levels in, in, in historically low levels. That's right. That's right. I mean, you can get Australian shares, and, and I wouldn't necessarily pick one individually, but if you get a well-diversified portfolio of Australian shares, you can fine-tune it by looking at those shares which pay good and sustainable dividends. But um, the average dividend yield grossed up for franking credits is around 65 7%, I think, um, whereas the bank one-year term deposit rate is down around 2 and so that's about as wide a gap as you, you ever see. It has been wider at the time of the very low point of the GFC, which was about March 2009, um, but normally um, that's, that's a sign that the share market's reasonably attractive. You can get a, a stabler, much higher income flow out of the share market than you can out of bank deposits. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so the ASX turning the corner now, I think it's up a, you know, up very smalls uh, for the year, one and a half, two percent 2%, I think. Um, so if it was to, you know, get through the, the, the next six months, you might be looking at a sort of four or five percent, which would be a great year, um, for a lot, compared to a lot of other compared <laughs> to <some alternatives laughs> asset classes. Dividends as well. Yeah. With, and add in your dividends. Yeah. So, um, look, um, just looking at, you know, one of the, one of the, um, most talked about, uh, uh, sectors on, on the ASX lately, uh, an area for a lot of speculation and exposed to a lot of shorting too is the retail sector. Um, been, um, really interesting last few weeks in Australia. Um, for people who are listening who are not in, um, uh, Sydney and Melbourne, we have had, uh, an extraordinary, uh, May. Um, I think there was only a few, uh, millimeters of uh, of rain. I, th- I saw some data that up to about the 23rd, there had only been four mi- uh, four mils of uh, of rain throughout the month. Um, so, it, you know, most people around the city couldn't remember the last time they'd seen um, anything wet coming from the sky. But um, this week it has come back, um, and we're looking to this weekend maybe about 200 mils, um, which is you know a, a classic torrential Sydney winter downpour um, coming for us. Um, now, obviously, sometimes these things affect um, uh, retail stocks. I mean, you've got the likes of the, the department stores, etc. 
Uh, might not, not sell all the warm stuff, um, but um, there's other, other sectors that it might affect, like energy and, and so on. So, uh, Shane, uh, quick take on the um, on the weather and how it might uh, uh, play out over the next uh, over, the, over the data over the next uh, four or five weeks. Yeah, I think combining weather with economists is a dangerous uh, thing, as each group says the other group was was invented to make them look better. But um, we have been going through a fairly severe El Nino phenomenon and. Uh, of course, in my, uh, my lifetime, I think of the one in the early 80s, which led to a severe drought, and of course that affected the economy, made the recession at the time a lot more severe. In recent times, we have had El Nino phenomenon, but they haven't affected the economy as much. But I think this time around, there might have been a little effect, and that's what you're alluding to there, um, apart from the fact that parts of Australia, parts of the East Coast are in drought. But the, the uh, retailing, I think there would have been a huge impact. To go through April and then May, um, pretty good weather just a couple of weeks ago now, 25 degrees on a Monday, I think it was, and then straight after that, I was off to Perth, where it was cold, then back to Sydney, where it's cold, and Melbourne's cold, and now we've got all this potential rain. Um, so it's classic mean reversion type stuff that it was a bit slow in coming, but that would be great news for retailers. If, if retailers had a, a tough month in May, particularly clothing retailers, then odds are they're going to have a much better June. Um, may have come a little bit too late though because their, their sales will ramp up now, but nevertheless they're likely to clear a lot of winter stock, I suspect, in the next uh, month or so. Dave, um, apart from the, the outlook for the rugby, um, you only take on the weather input into the, the economy over the last month? I had to go and check the, uh, the details of the, uh, the retail sales report by state, but uh, I did notice that spending at cafes, restaurants, uh, etc. was up 1% in, uh, in April, uh, and that was part of the Indian summer, and obviously we extended that into the vast majority of May. To me, that's maybe a sign that, uh, that the weather was impacting spending. People were outdoors having a beers. I know that I certainly was uh, after work and the like, so uh, that could have been one app. But uh, for the... Uh Obviously, the retailers have had it tough. You, know, they, you can't control the weather. They've got a whole lot of stuff that's sitting on their shelves at the moment. They say sales are coming soon, but I've got to say, I think most of the retailers I've seen walking around the city have been on sale 24-7, you know, 12 months of the year nowadays. So that's, that's definitely been an impact. You've been listening to the Devils in Details podcast on Business Insider Australia. Our guest this week has been Shane Oliver from AMP Capital. Thanks for coming on, Shane. It's been a pleasure. Um, and you can find us at businessinsider.com.au or on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S, B-I-O-S. Talk to you soon. Bye. Today's episode was delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business, helping you save time and money. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when you send on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.